welcome back to another episode of Marvel News Desk, your best place to keep up with all the latest news, reviews, and speculation concerning Marvel films and TV shows. Our panel today is our usual crew. We've got Adam. Hey, what's going on, guys? You can find me on Twitter at Adam Barnhart. And Rhiannon. Hey, guys. I am on Twitter as Shot of Patron, or at Shot of Patron as Brooklyn Wallace. And I'm Caleb. I'm on Twitter at Caleb A. Borchers. Uh, we want to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to us on YouTube. That's watch.marvelnewsdesk.com. The gifted video has hit recently. I think we've got probably something daredevil-y lined up here for coming up in October. Uh, also check out the second podcast in the Marvel News Desk family. That is called AP Marvel. And if I remember correctly, this week is about sex in the MCU. Is that right? Did you guys... I, I don't think I'm making this up. I'm pretty sure it's, uh, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me on the uh, podcast. You know, that old song that I felt really awkward. I should have sang it more or something. I don't know. Let's talk about sex. Yeah, that's I thought there it, was right? actually exactly. a, like, I thought they yeah. said, let's talk about sex podcast or whatever you said. I'm like, how's that a really old song and they're talking uh, about podcasting? <laughs> no. Also, we want to remind you guys of uh, the event coming up at New York Comic Con. If you're going to be at New York Comic Con or if you live in New York, New Jersey, near New York City area, we'd love for you to come out and uh, hang out with us at New York Comic Con. Um, That is going to be on Friday, October 5th from 6 to 8. It's going to be at the Bourbon Street Bar and Grill in Manhattan. It's at 346 West 46th Street. Uh, there is a Facebook event. Uh, we should make probably a web page for it um, on the main site to get you some more attention to it. Uh, I think it's probably connected to our Facebook Marvel News Desk site. Um, or you can uh, – I'll put the uh, the address for the Facebook event uh, in the description for this episode. So, Is that all the details, Rhiannon? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You can always just tweet at me and be like, hey, where are y'all at? And I'll send you the details because we want to meet you guys. Exactly. Yeah. We, unlike last year where we were like, I don't know if we're ready to meet anyone yet. I think we feel self-assured <laughs> enough at this point that we're ready to meet people. So, um, yeah. <laughs> now that I've run into random people that recognize my name, I'm fine with it. And not one of them was a serial killer, right? So things seem to work that out. Okay. <laughs> that we know of. That's right. <laughs> Oh, all right. Really, some of us ended up hanging out and having a good time last year anyways. I just wanted to go ahead and make a plan for it and have a space. So, you know, come be a part of our friends. And like we said last week, uh, Chris Compendio is going to be there. I think some of the AP Marvel people are going to be there. Or people have at least guest appeared on AP Marvel. So um, it should be cool. You'll, ha- you'll be hanging out with all the cool podcasters if that's something you've ever really wanted to do. So. And like I said, if you're around New York and you just want to go, it's not like you have to be at the con. Nobody's going to be checking for a badge or anything at the door. So definitely if you live anywhere close to Manhattan and you just want to come in to meet us, that'd be great too. So, All right. Uh, first bit of news. Bob Iger gave a pretty wide-ranging interview about a variety of things that he deals with. And uh, he mentioned a couple of Marvel things. Uh, the first thing that he mentioned, or at least the first thing I want to talk about, is uh, he was asked if Deadpool would join the Avengers. And his response was, I can't say specifically, but I know that Kevin has a lot of ideas for those characters. 
And he kind of confirmed that the X-Men were going to be brought into Marvel Studios purview for Kevin Feige to have control of. Um, this is, again, was one of those things that I didn't realize I had to be nervous about until I didn't have to be nervous about it anymore. I mean, we always kind of assumed that Feige was going to get the keys to those characters, right? You know, we didn't know. We didn't know if, like, you know, Dark Phoenix or whatever, uh, was going to, you know, that stuff that had started was going to keep going. There was no assurance that it would all be handed to Feige, but, it, but yeah. I thought they weren't allowed to have ideas and thoughts on those characters. Right? <laughs> yeah. They weren't legally allowed yeah, to I have thought their that's ideas. that's where we were yeah. at. Um, but, yeah. I mean, yeah, that... We've talked about this before. I mean, there's no way Kevin Feige has not even an inkling of what he's going to do with the X-Men and Fantastic Four. I would guess he already has a trilogy for each property planned out already. I I, I mean, I think Deadpool is an interesting character to ask about first because I'm not so sure that Deadpool is the first thing that Feige wants to mix in there. I think he might let Deadpool and X-Force kind of run its own... uh, kind of run its own energy out in those movies kind of as standalone different universe things before they bring him in. But, um, I think definitely X-Men, he's got lots of plans coming. I don't know. I think introducing all these characters, I mean, I think trying to merge and fix the universes with Deadpool's fourth wall breaking, it might be just what they need just for him to like pop up in a show and be like, or in a movie and be like, Hey, it's weird for me to be here. Don't worry about this. And I think that's definitely, if they choose to actually merge what exists, I think that'll happen. My guess has always been that they'll totally start from scratch. And so I think that that'll change things. If they start from scratch, I don't think you start with Deadpool from scratch, but if you're merging, you you, you do Deadpool to merge, so. Iger was also asked about James Gunn and it was really interesting because he, he kind of gave the party line of like, no, we're not going to bring Gunn back in. But then he also said that that was a unanimous decision that was handed to him. Um, which I assume means Alan Horn and people with lots and lots and lots of money on the board. But Adam, did you pay much attention to these comments? Did it seem a little odd the way he deflected responsibility? Yeah, he he said something in like the same breath or the same sentence about how uh, the Roseanne thing. It was the way he said it. It, Me, since I'm not a, I won't call myself a gun sympathizer, but uh, it just, it was kind of weird. I mean, Iger said that it was his decision to cancel Roseanne. But then James, I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. Um, but the gun decision was brought to them, and he happened to agree with it. Uh, it just it was worded kind of weird. Um, and I'm looking for anything to kind of beef up conspiracy theories. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of the first official news we've gotten about it. You know, I mean, he's guns been super, super quiet. I don't think he's made a single social media post since. Um, and we still haven't heard anything from Kev either, which we probably won't. Yeah. As you said, with Ro- it was weird because he did seem to say like, well, with Roseanne, I was part of that decision. I totally agreed with it. And then when it came to gun, 
he didn't say he disagreed with it, but he also made it sound like it was made above him, which mm-hmm. most of us assume that he's effectively the king of the universe at this point, you yeah. know, like, so I guess there is still some layers above him. And, um, it does make me think that this is definitely something that business people decided with no concern about what financial people thought about it or business people thought without any concern for what creatives thought of it. So, all right, moving on from that story, uh, we have a new director for a movie that apparently is really happening. Uh, Eternals got a director last week, according to the trades, Chloe Zhao was picked to do this film. I think that's how you pronounce the ZH in Chinese. I really don't know, but Chloe Zhao, um, she did a movie called Rider and another movie called Songs My Brothers Taught Me. She's gotten lots of nominations for like Indie Spirit Awards, and she is uh, very highly acclaimed within the indie film community. Do you guys have any thoughts about this director and what it means for um, for Eternals? Was this the... I think this was the case where they almost offered her the job on the spot right after her pitch. One of the articles, I believe like THR said that they had, uh, they heard to put it together an offer. So she didn't go elsewhere with another gig. So, I mean, that, that makes me seem like Eternals is, is happening sooner than we thought. Yeah. I also, I thought I read somewhere that she was on the black widow shortlist at one point. So they had already had a good feel about who she was before this. I mean, I guess it makes the Eternals more real, which is just so weird. It's so weird not having that announcement saying everything that's coming and where it is and and the plan. It makes it feel like all of the other universes. Right. right. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. I think... I mean, I think when I started getting involved with the MCU, at least hardcore and quote-unquote MCU journalists, it was sometime post that huge movie dump. You know, so I guess I'm just used to knowing what's happening, I guess. And I, for the life of me, can't remember before that was there all this speculation and was Variety releasing like, oh, Iron Man 2, blah, 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 you know? Yeah, it's. I mean, there was some of that. The fa- phase one was really hobbled together a little bit at a time. I don't think it was nearly as planned out. Um, I remember paying attention back when, for a little while there, they were announcing movies one or two at a time at San Diego. It was like every year at San Diego, they'd be like, here's some looks at things that we have in development, and now we're going to set the next one or two down the road. Um but yeah, for the most of the time that we've been doing this, there was the roadmap of the um, El Capitan announcement with some slight changes here or there for uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp and for Spider-Man. But it's, it is really weird. I mean, we know now Black Widow's happening and they've not announced it, but we know there's a director. We know Eternals has a director and they've not announced it. Um, so yeah, it's... I mean, Doctor Strange 2, we, we really believe will happen. And we've gotten hints from Scott Derrickson has been tweeting Doctor Strange panels again. Uh, he's back on Twitter, by the way. So, you know, like, I don't know. It is weird that we know that these things are happening and Marvel won't tell us, yes, it's definitely happening. 
But it saved their bacon on Guardians. They don't have to backpedal on the Guardians date now. So, do e- do either of you know anything about this uh, director or her previous work? And my guess being no. <laughs> nope. I finally got uh, around to watching Mississippi Grind the other night, which is by the Captain Marvel people, right? I still don't know uh-huh. their names. Bowden and Fleck. Ryan, Bowden and Fleck. Yes, Anna and Ryan. Right. Yes, but I don't know which is which. It's like right. one of those kids' games where there's like, like at the like yeah. the play place, you know, where there's rotating heads and bottoms. And you don't know yeah, which goes exactly. Which. Yeah. I'm the same exact way with Marcus and McFeely. I just think it's one person named Marcus McFeely. Um, Mississippi Grind wasn't too bad. I think this the writer has like a almost perfect Rotten Tomatoes score. I think it's like at 98, maybe. Yeah, so just so I could try to talk about this, I watched the trailers for two of her movies. I don't have the time to actually watch her movies, but I watched the trailers. The one, uh, Songs My Brothers Taught Me or whatever, is about Native Americans and living life as a Native Americans in the 21st century. And The Rider is a movie that's about uh, bull riders or rodeo people or something like that. All of her movies seem very small budget and shot in the desert and very, very, very serious and sad. So I guess the only thing that was interesting to me, we talked a little bit about Taika taking over Eternals, and I thought that would be a little goofy. Uh, I think they're taking this a dramatic turn unless she's about to unleash a directorial style that she has not shown before because these trailers like felt real, real heavy. Like I was sad after two minutes. So I can't imagine those movies were rollicking good times. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how that works in Marvel's tone. So let's let's. I mean, how sorry? How crazy is it? I mean, she has two feature films under her belt. I was only aware of the writer, right? So let's. I mean, how crazy of a career progression is that? You do one indie film that does exceptionally well and then all of a sudden you have your hands on obviously i don't want to say your career is about to peak but i mean it is one of the biggest movies you'll ever probably direct and it's your third movie of your career that is crazy yeah i mean I've, i thought of this the other day i saw taiko itd's like filmography and then i saw the production budgets and like his movies were like two, $3 million movie budgets. Yeah. And then he gets stuck on like the 220 million or whatever Ragnarok was. And I think the thing that's surprising to me, I would assume that many of these directors wouldn't want to do something like this. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't say no when you get the offer to do something, but if you're making little indie movies about, you know, rodeos on $2 million budgets in the middle of the desert, you know, they're getting, acclaimed as artistic triumphs and then somebody comes to you and goes uh, i've got this uh property that's basically greek gods but not really greek gods and they're superheroes and they shoot lasers out of their eyeballs but nobody knows who they are do you want it i'm just surprised that marvel gets so many of these uh, like these famous not famous but these uh well acclaimed directors to go yep that sounds like fun I, I it just it surprises me I guess that they're even wanting to take that jump. I figure more people would turn their nose up at it, but maybe not anymore. No, I I can only help but think of the uh, stepbrother scene where they go, oh, we have all this room for activities. 
And I think a lot of people, I mean, yeah, uh, there are lots of people that do artsy films for the sake of artsy films, but a lot of people are doing those low-budget low films because they want to do the $100 million theatrical releases. So maybe Marvel's just doing good at identifying those people. I think we're also seeing... Um the value of a wider casting net. So if she really did come through the black widow process, um, this reminds me a lot of the Rooney rule. Um, Adam will know from his, you know, his, his sports stuff. Rooney rule in the NFL is that you have to, um, you have to interview a minority coach for every head coaching vacancy that you have. I mean, obviously, they're not going to make you hire a coach that's a minority, but you have to have at least one candidate who comes in and interviews. And, you know, there's debates about how effective it's been, but it does seem to have gotten some guys a foot in the door where they get the experience of interviews and then they interview better the next time or owners see guys that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And it really just helps the pipeline so that there's more opportunity for guys that weren't getting hired before. And I feel like this big black widow search where they went out and cast a really wide net to find a female director and tried lots of these indie people. I'm not sure if they find this, this woman without that process, but I think it couldn't have hurt that she, you know, was part of the black widow process and it's good. I think it's really good for Marvel studios to go through really broad searches on these films so that they have this portfolio of indie directors in their back pocket for the next stuff, you know? All right, um, we're going to go on to the next news story, which is Jeff Loeb, Rhiannon's favorite person. Uh, he had a conversation with Entertainment Weekly, and um, the only thing that I wanted to pull out of this was, was really interesting. Uh, he was asked why Iron Fist and Daredevil were being released so close together, and his answer was basically, you'll have to talk to Netflix about that. I don't make those decisions. And then he was asked if Defenders would ever get a second season. And his answer again was kind of like, you'll have to ask Netflix about that. Um, those comments strike you as interesting or unusual at all, Rhiannon, for him to kind of offload so many of them onto next Netflix execs? No, I, I think it's kind of normal for him. I mean, there's always been a lot of stuff he's always consistently said it's up to Netflix whenever there's questions about the future of the Netflix Marvel universe. So I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's completely on brand for him to, to deflect like that. And I think it's probably true. Uh, I mean, from what I've heard from behind the scenes and stuff, like there's a lot that Netflix controls and, um, you know, I mean, a lot of it that they control on the front end and on the release end. And the flip side is they give the complete creative freedom in between. Because um, I had heard some rumors on, like, the terms of renewing Iron Fist. And it's still, it turned around and it, you know, the Raven Metzner still had complete creative control. You know, you haven't heard anything about we had to, you know, do certain things. I don't want to spoil Iron Fist because I'm sure we have a lot of listeners that haven't watched 
um, yeah, just, you know, we had to do certain things because Netflix, you don't hear that stuff, but you do hear a lot of stuff when it comes to the releases and what they want. So I don't think he's being shady, but it does kind of make me think the difference between Loeb and Feige is Loeb must be much more comfortable having things out of his control, whereas Feige just gets to control everything. So it takes two completely different mindsets. I don't want to give Loeb too much, but I mean, we did a we did a podcast earlier this year, right? Of like, is Loeb starting to like lose his touch uh, after Inhumans and Defenders, and then Jessica Jones two was kind of weak. But I think I I should be fairer to say that like I don't know how much of Inhumans is ABC's fault, you know? Right, like how much of that was that he had two months to. You know, go into production. You know, that Loeb was in a place where he had to find somebody and and get a show going on the schedule with IMAX and ABC. Um, and I think that's it. You know, how much of it is his control and how much isn't. And I think far less of it's in his control than we imagine. I mean, just watching all the shows. I mean, he doesn't just do the MCU shows. You know, he's got that executive producer credit on legion on the gifted you know us trying to cover them all just as fans we realize how much time and effort you know by the time you get over to runaways and cloak and dagger and all of that his oversight you know there's only so much he can micromanage and know and do there's so much out of his control on everything that yeah i'm willing to give him a break for inhumans yeah, particularly because with both Inhumans and Iron Fist, we said schedule and money were probably big problems. And now I'm feeling more and more like those are decisions that Netflix is making or ABC is making. Not, you know, like Loeb isn't telling them, no, you've got to give me this much. They're like, hey, we can do this show. We'll give you this much money. It has to be delivered by the state. And then he's got to make that work, you know. Exactly. The interview was kind of, I don't want to say worthless, but I mean, it wasn't like there was any breaking news, you know, released in there. And it's kind of the nature of the beast, you know, it's uh, luckily for Jeff, I mean, he's in a position where he can pass the buck. Whereas if you look at Marvel Studios, you know, now that, I mean, Kev pretty much has exclusive control over Marvel Studios, you know, and reports directly to Bob Iger, you know, obviously he's not going to say, oh, ask, ask Bob about that movie or, or something like that. You know, it's they're making their own movies while Jeff has to pretty much put on his his suit and tie and go out and actively try selling these TV properties. And I wouldn't want to overmake the case, but it is interesting that we had the Iger interview and the Loeb interview within like a day of each other. And in the Iger interview, they go, hey, Bob, what are you going to do with Deadpool? And he goes, I don't know. That's Feige's job. And he gives the responsibility to somebody down the chain. And they talk to Loeb about, are you going to do Defenders? And he goes, I don't know. You'll have to ask Netflix. And he sends them up, you know, kind of up the chain. It's kind of interesting to see the difference there. For sure. And this whole, the Loki and Scarlet Witch news, you know, that I would say that through probably through a wrench in Loeb's plans, you know, I mean, if they're going to you know, expand the MCU with Hiddleston and Elizabeth Olsen. And what if Paul Bettany gets a vision series or hell, what happens if, you know, Chris Evans and Haley Atwell get like a one shot, you know, like a, an hour long episode to wrap things up or something, you know, 
obviously that's not going to be, you know, do any favors for Jeff. Yeah, there was somebody, I think it was either Dave or Love Waffle, they are having a conversation in the comments from last week, and they said there was a line, and it's not what Iger, it's not what, I mean, it wasn't explicitly about Loeb, but Iger was asked about X-Men, and he used the phrase, well, we're definitely going to put them under uh, Kevin Feige's control, because you can't have two different heads of Marvel. The Marvel all needs to be under one person. And they were like, well, I wonder how Kevin Jeff Loeb felt about a comment like that. Like, it's not directed at him, but it certainly um, it certainly couldn't have made him too happy. <laughs> Great. Well, but that fits, that fits our narrative that Loeb is there getting Feige's leftovers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now we're going to get a Gambit TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot think of. Oh, that would be real bad. A Gambit TV show. If you thought if you thought New Orleans in Cloak and Dagger was ridiculous, wait until you see New Orleans on a Gambit show. Uh, this is confirmation of what we really already knew. Uh, Daredevil posters and teasers last week said that the nineteenth of October is definitely the date uh, for release. So that's what we were expecting. Um, interesting. I saw today that making, uh, making of a murderer, their documents, docu, docudrama series, whatever about the, that family in Wisconsin that killed that lady. I mean, maybe killed that lady, um, is going to be dropping on the same day. Um, I don't know. Does that strike you as kind of, I mean, I know they put out lots of content, but does it seem odd that they're sharing daredevil's date with something as big as making of a murderer? I mean, Netflix has the information. They know how much those two audiences overlap. I mean, that's that's how they built their world, is they studied stuff. So I guess those two audiences don't overlap enough. You know, either one of those audiences doesn't watch their stuff the day or weekend it comes out, or they don't overlap. Oh, I'm definitely going to play devil's advocate on this one. Netflix must be worried about DDP's quality. <laughs> so so they're, they're pushing out. They're pushing out, making a murderer the very same day. That's, so that's that. Iron Fist Revenge. That's what that is. No, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, people would have said it if it was Iron Fist. So. And no, yeah, it's, but I, I totally forgot that they're making a new Making a Murderer. I've been following it in real life since season one. So that's going to be a busy weekend. Yeah. It, see, I guess it struck me as weird because other than Marvel, there's like three things that I'm really into on Netflix so that I watch very carefully. Like I love Stranger Things. Um, I don't even watch House of Cards that much anymore. And then Making of a Murderer was something that I keep waiting for the next season. So maybe there's a small overlap, but I'm some of that overlap. So it just was really weird to me that they would put them together. So, so which one will you be watching? Uh, Daredevil season three. Yeah. <laughs> I I will, I will I'm be rewatching gonna... some of Daredevil season three before I watch making a murderer. I bet. So, all right. Uh, what's the next bit I have in here? Okay. So, um, black widow plot details keep maybe coming out. Uh, MCU cosmic had a report run yesterday morning for us. Monday morning, yeah, the news is going to be slow, hopefully, for the rest of the week because we're recording early, that Black Widow is going to fight the Y2K virus in her movie. Um, 
is this possibly real? I mean, I don't know. Honestly, it looked like the stupidest idea I've ever seen. The idea that they based the movie over Y2K. What did you guys think when you saw this, uh, this plot suggestion? Well, children, let me tell you about the days when we sat around drinking Zima, <laughs> worrying about Y2K. Um, well, this isn't the first that we've heard that it would be set in the past. Um, though coming right after Captain Marvel being set in the 90s, having another show set in the 90s with a female hero, they, they can pull it off. They can pull off whatever. I mean, um, and the Y2K situation, I mean, it's not so much like, oh, the Y2K issue, you know, like, but I wouldn't think the Black Widow story would be so focused on technology and programming and stuff like that. I don't, you know. It would be interesting how they tie that into action um, and spies and such. I mean, I can imagine I can imagine a thriller based on Y2K where there are spies and they are trying to use all of the last minute software fixes that happened as a way to hack in and get access to all sorts of stuff. But it just doesn't sound like a Black Widow story to me. I may have just written a movie there. Something. I mean. You're gonna get a, a call from 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 Kev tomorrow. Uh, listen, we're having a little trouble with this script, but uh... yeah, but we listen to the podcast. Um... I'm a Patreon supporter. At least you get it, and nobody else does. <laughs> I mean, do you guys remember that? I, I yeah, I was gonna ask right. what, uh, what did you guys do anything to prep for Y2K? Because I know we sure as hell did. Really? Did you guys? Oh, yeah. no, this is going to be good. Was there like a bunker in Iowa that was all prepared for it or what? Yeah, so we went down to the cellar with our lanterns and overalls on, and we were just, no, it's, I, no, I remember watching it, and I think Mom and Dad let me stay up late that night. Um, No, I remember we, like, <laughs> gathered lanterns or something. You d- um, they did realize that Y2K happened in Australia like 18 hours before it happened here, and it was okay. Yeah, I don't know. I vaguely remember it. I was barely born. I was in high school, so I, I think You're the not- only... God, I keep forgetting you guys are old. The only thing I remember about Y2K... I mean, there was a minimal amount of belief that maybe we get a couple days off. Like, if everything went totally wrong, that we maybe get some days off school... And I have to go back on like January 10th instead of January 4th or 5th or whatever. But that's all I remember at all of Y2K. Oh, that's so cute. It wasn't very, yeah, wasn't a well thought out plan. Because we can have school without computers. Like, <laughs> we're millennials. Anyways, um, <laughs> I do, what's really weird to me about Black Widow is they're like, well, there's going to be a story about Black Widow when she's a young woman after she gets out of the 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 um, the Russian, you know, oh, what all I can think of, it's not Red Sparrow. What's it called? The the Red Room. Red Room. Right. It's like it's her when she gets out of the Red Room before she joins Shield. And I keep forgetting that the MCU timeline is moved to where it is because for me, Black Widow grows up in communist Ru- Russia. 
But if Black Widow uh, was in communist Russia when she was 18, she'd be like 55 or 60 now or something. You know, like the timelines have all shifted forward. And so while when I, I don't know why this is so stupid to me. When I heard young Black Widow movie, I was like, oh, 1980s Civil War, Civil War, Cold War, um, like paranoia 80s style movie without thinking of the fact that if she was 20 and 85, then in these movies, she would be whatever in her mid to late forties. And it does like the timeline doesn't work. And so it kind of forces you to do something like Y2K, but that feels way too newish for me for that character. I mean, if it's set in 2000, she's gotta be, it's she's still gotta be a teenager, right? Yeah. I think that was the idea. She's like 18 or 19 in this movie, which by the way, how is Scarlett Johansson going to play 18 or 19? I mean, she she She's doesn't look that young for all sorts of stuff, man. Are they gonna de-age her the entire movie? That would be interesting. Maybe they actually filmed it ten years ago and they've just saved it. I I I mean I don't know. Um, I would have to see something to get me excited about all of this. And we may need a whole other podcast for my way two K story because it, it was much more exciting than the two of yours. <laughs> I I do think. Rhiannon, you've ruined the Black Widow movie for me because the more the more that I think about what you said last week, this is so the right character for a Disney streaming six episode miniseries like I don't I don't need her in a movie. And I know Black Widow fans, I know you've waited, you've been patient and you want to claw my eyeballs out for suggesting it. But I just think the the kinds of special effects, the kind of budget, the scale, the thing what works for her. I do not want her racing to stop a nuclear apocalypse. I want it to be like her stopping an assassination. And you can do that in a TV budget and storyline, I think, much better than a big movie one. So. Sorry. I spent the weekend with Canadians. I learned to say sorry <laughs> a lot. Sorry. All right. We've got two last little news things. Um, Sean Gunn is saying the Guardian told the the Tulsa World Reporter or something that the Guardians of the Three uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three script from his brother would be the script that's used for the movie, but that the production is in uh, kind of limbo right now. Uh, Adam, I'm sure you saw this news. Does this seem like a super reliable source? Like I keep seeing people say confirmed. And it seems odd that they would confirm something based on Sean's comments to a Tulsa newspaper. Uh, I mean, I'm not discrediting the Tulsa World Herald or whatever it is, you know, by any means. It's probably a lot more reliable than the Pocahontas Record Democrat. Um, But, yeah, I don't... It makes sense. I mean, I'm reassured uh you know about a guardians 3 if they use his script but it it brings back the question why the hell use his script if you won't let him direct like one last movie you know and i get the the your thoughts on it caleb with oh oh, the press tour and things like that they could probably get around that um but yeah i I mean regardless guardians 3 obviously kevin's gonna have to field questions about gun from every angle anyways so whatever i i mean it's kind of like a consolation prize it's kind of like our participation trophy t 
to get to get Gunn's script used. I mean, it it's only makes sense, I guess, if they don't mind having Gunn being credited on the, you know, on the poster or in the, you know, intro, whatever. At least we know that the characters will probably be treated right. I think Sean knows. Yeah. Really? So. This is interesting to me. So, you, you, like, you think that Bob Iger's calling up Sean Gunn to tell him what they're doing with the script? Oh, no, I'm sure no. they've told no. James, and James has kind of informed yeah. his family. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think James knows, and, I mean, he's not in Twitter Wars anymore, so he's talking to his brother. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's... I mean, I think, I think it's... Pop- I think Sean probably knows more than your average cast member and sometimes when you're in that situation you forget what's not public that's that's good let's i, I believe that. we could pr- yeah we could probably agree sean knows more than dave batista right <laughs> <laughs> yes i would think so just as an example and i mean i craiglin's probably slated to have his biggest movie yet right i mean he was probably going to have a pretty substantial role in volume three Oh, it'll it'll still be a second greatest role after the infamous Kirk from Gilmore Girls. But yeah, I'm sure it'll be a much bigger role. <laughs> Kirk was wonderful. Um, I do think... Um, I was wondering, do you think it's possible that Gunn is making this part of his severance package? Like, do you think he's negotiating that like, okay, I'll take less money... But you have got to use my script. Like I could see James Gunn like taking less out of the severance package if it guaranteed him that his his script would still be used. I mean, he he was probably paid upon completion of the script, anyways, wasn't he? Yeah, but if you're if it doesn't get rewritten to a certain point and you get an actual writer's credit on the show, um, you get more money in residuals. But they're also having to pay him a severance package for the direct. I mean, my understanding was they were negotiating how much he was going to get paid for the fact that they dumped him after signing him to a contract to be a director. I don't think that Disney can just remove him without paying him some kind of severance. So, yeah, I don't know. How great would a James Gunn directed Shazam movie be? That would be also very solid. I could dig it. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, man. DC, that would that would bring them right back into relevance. Almost as much as if one of their heroes' junk ended up in a comic book, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we got pics today of Captain America, fully dressed, <laughs> uh, and he had his uh, he had the cool like chainmail, feathery looking. Um, uniform on. Did you see these? Was this exciting to see him finally go comic accurate with that stuff? They did not look bad at all. The pictures are terrible, terrible quality. But uh, yeah, I thought it looked great. And they're bringing back the what do you call it? It's not a cowl. It's a mask, a helmet, helmet mask. I don't know what you call that. That's that's the first in a while, right? Uh, yeah, since Civil War, I think. Like, why does Captain America need a mask? I assume it's a helmet. Because, like, is there anybody out there that doesn't know that Steve Rogers is Captain America? 
Sorry, that's irrelevant. But yeah, so I, I don't know. That's been in the comics a long time. the The wings on his helmet used to kind of stick out too. But I love that there's this stuff that they didn't do when they first made these movies in order to make it feel grounded and real. And now they are so far down the I don't give a flip Marvel can do whatever they want train that they're like, oh, let's throw in all this random crap that people would have made fun of 10 years ago that now gives us all kinds of street cred. Like, I think that's so awesome. But I think it's also the confidence that they had, like when they started these series, that we'll get time to tell all these stories. We'll get time to use all these references. We'll get time to let this play out slowly so we don't have to throw everything in this first movie. I was thinking about Iron Man the other day. Like when you think about the iterations of his armor and the way that like by Iron Man three, it was like flying to him from other places. And like, there was like kind of, they kind of pushed towards the extremist stuff. And then eventually we got to the nanotech. Like it makes me wonder if Feige had a very detailed plan of like six steps of Iron Man, you know, costumes. And they very, very carefully like held back. So there was always somewhere to go with the next stage until Tony died in Avengers four, you know, like I wonder if that's kind of a plan. That's almost sociopathic behavior, isn't it? Planning out details that minute. Yeah. But I mean, otherwise you run the risk of like escalating into like, I don't know. You don't want to blow your wad, so to speak on, you know, Iron Man two. Right. 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 And that's, I mean, what, this is arguably probably Cap's last appearance, so you might as well, might as well give him the, we saw him uh, on set, though, with his Avengers costume, right? Yeah, the the flashback, time travel, barf, Avengers costume, barf yeah. St- stuff, yeah. Michael T. Ford in the uh, live chat is saying that they're, they're giving him the iconic costume so they can have the iconic death scene on the steps. Right, Ooh. like the end of Civil War, maybe. I think that's what he's yeah. referring to. That would be awesome. Crossbones kills him, right? Uh, oh, Isn't it? Crossbones tries to kill him, and then like a brainwashed Shannon Carter like shivs him in the back at the same oh, time or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Spoilers for comics that are 15 years old. Sorry, guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we don't have any trailers or previews this week wait, or wait. Uh, any episodes of TV shows. Did the Daredevil trailer come out in time for our last podcast? Did we talk about it last no. week? Oh, the swinging light trailer? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the whole reason yes, I came on this week, this... guys. Come on. <laughs> so I don't even remember. It's it's uh, Matt. He's bloody. He's got the uh, the original black suit on, and he's got the uh, the light swinging around. Which he's being interrogated by Jack uh-huh. Bauer. Yeah. 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 And it was like the only way to be darkness is to become the darkness or something. Yeah, I, I realize this reveals how many times I didn't rewatch it, but I swear I loved it. That's all I wanted to say. Can we talk about what passes for a trailer real quick? I'm still quick? considering this a teaser. Because anything Netflix has posted for any of their TV shows, they haven't been trailers. They've been teasers at best, right? 
Yeah, I seriously, they've talked about like the content spend on Netflix. Can we, is their marketing budget just been slashed? Like, is this how they're affording all right. this content? Is they just don't market things anymore? I mean, Iron Fist got like two bus stops in New York City. Like the little like digital bus stop advertisements, and otherwise there was no Iron Fist advertising. Whereas normally, when these shows come out, they they're all over New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd assume there's a real trailer coming. But this one had some cool stuff, and there were a lot of set photos revealed this week that came out over this past week, like Matt and Foggy. Um, there's a picture of Matt and Karen. There's a picture of Matt and boxing gloves. There's, Ugh, and there's the, the cross shot. Yeah. Him like hanging from the cross with the skyline, which is the thing that most pumped me up, um, from these photos. Uh, I'm glad the whole world has seen this now so I can talk about it. Cause I love that shot so much. Yes. It's, it's, I, I love it all. I think it's all great. I, I wish they would stop doing any interviews and saying anything or sharing anything with folks. Because I want everybody to have the completely unspoiled experience. But I also love what they've released, too. So. It's almost like we're sure Daredevil Season 3 is going to be awesome. I mean, I couldn't say anything. Intuitively. 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 Like, that's just, just our gut instinct. From these advertisements. Uh-huh. Yep. I've always I've always loved the um I've just always loved that John Casada artwork. Joe. Like that's always been Joe my favorite Quesada. one and like what did I You say? just called him John Casada. John No, John's his brother. John also did a couple comic covers. Oh really? <laughs> no, I'm just, no, I was just trying <laughs> to come trying to your defense. So Joe Joe Cassatt, he did the, he did for the Marvel Knights run, he had that cover, and I've always liked um, just the way it plays off of, like, a devil and a cross, and then, like, Matt looking over the city. I just have always loved that image. In fact, I bought recently the Diamond Select toy. There's a Daredevil action figure that Diamond Select did with a, um, like, a cross that came with it that you can, like, drape him over it, so it's, like, that same shot. And I bought it just because it was my favorite Daredevil cover art. And so, yeah, I'm real pumped. It would have been nice if it was red suit instead of black suit, but I'm still pretty excited about it. So, See, I thought that was a different cover, but I'm wrong. You're right. Well, Frank Miller kind of did something similar. The Death of Electra comic? Maybe not? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, is that like in a cemetery, though? Yeah. 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 You're right. All right. Have we now uh have we now handled the trailer sufficiently? Yes, that is sufficient. I am good. We can we can carry on. All now. right. All right, today we're going to talk about The Gifted Season 2 and uh, as you know if you've been listening to our podcast, uh Adam and Rhiannon and I are not experts in this in any way shape or form. And so we decided to bring in somebody who is. We've got Sarah with us who is the Marvel News Desk gifted expert already she has been given this position uh at the website she's uh, a good a big fan of the show and so really excited uh to have you with us today sarah thank you i'm super excited to talk about it with you guys because i am a little obsessed with the tv show um but y'all knew that already 
Uh, yeah, no, I was really into The Gifted last season. They did a lot of great things. I'm glad to, excited to talk about that with you guys today. Now, just as we get going into it, um, did you have experience? Like, did you grow up watching the X-Men or listening or reading X-Men comics or anything? Or have you just, is this show kind of been your gateway drug into that kind of world? I, it's definitely the later. So I got into the show because of my friend Faith, who introduced it to me. She's like, hey, you need to look at this because the writing on the, the writing is really well done. Me and her, um, we're a little, we're a little like crit- critical of the TV show writing, like how the characters are portrayed, you know, their backstories, like stuff like that. And so because she gave me that recommendation, I went ahead and watched it because I'm a little picky about what I watch. And I was really fascinated with the storytelling, the character development, and it was most definitely a gateway drug into the Marvel universe for me, uh, particularly because of Lorna Dane. Uh, you know, in the old comics, as I've researched and studied, because I didn't know a lot about that universe, uh, she did not play as big of a role in the comics as she does in the Gifted universe. But I love that about the TV show, because she is a pretty fascinating character as you get into her history. Um, and Emma Dumont, who plays her on the Gifted, does a really great job. So that that and uh, the relationship between... Lorna Dane and her TV show lover and partner, Marcos Diaz, because I'm real big about those star-crossed lovers, let me tell you, that and just the writing overall is what hooked me on the show. So we had the season two premiere just this week, um, back on uh, Fox on Tuesday nights. Um, Just go ahead and tell us how you felt generally. Like, did you enjoy the the season two premiere? Do you feel like it kicked off well, or... How are you feeling it uh, progressed since uh, the end of season one? So the season two premiere uh, was pretty, um, what's the word? I was, I was happy with it. I think a TV show like The Gifted that did so well in its freshman season can have a lot harder time going into that sophomore season, the second season, because there are some expectations there for it to perform as well as it did last year. Uh, I think it did pretty great. I was actually looking at Rotten Tomatoes, looking at some of the online review places that are pretty popular. I think it's like at 79% on Rotten Tomatoes right now with not that very many reviews. I think it's respectable. I enjoyed it personally. Um, There was a lot of, you know, they basically went back over what happened in a nutshell last season, but they did a really good job making that you know, connection into the current time period we're in, which essentially time jumped a little bit. You know, we've got Lorna Dane, who is like completely pregnant, about to have her kid, who is Marcos Diaz's, her partner. Um, There's a lot of conflict there. I thought that that was really well played in both characters throughout that first episode of season two. Um, You've also got the Strucker family, and their side story that's going on uh, this season. You know, the siblings, the two siblings, they are broken up. And there's a lot of conflict, not only with that, but the fact that you've now got the Hellfire Club and the Inner Circle versus the Mutant Underground, which is kind of the big thing that's pitting everyone against each other. So all in all, you know, they set it up really well for us to continue on into the season and kind of see where that main conflict is going to take all the little conflicts that are building outside of it. Yeah. I really appreciated that they, 
um, they, I didn't feel like we were retreading anything. Like, I think there's a real risk that you just do the same thing over that people liked. And so if I had seen right. a I lot agree. more of Sentinel, Sur- I mean, I'm sure they'll be back, but if it had been just like on the run from Sentinel services or like yet another jailbreak right. or something like that, I've been like, Oh boy, here we go. So right. and it's, it's like interesting. Yeah. You bring that up because, um, interesting you bring that up because um jace turner the sentinel service agent who was kind of one of the main bad guys last season he did not return in this premiere episode which is a little surprising we did have some presence of the sentinel services um in the raids and stuff that happened in the season premiere which were really sad uh but I did not see Jace, and he was kind of, you know, one of the main catalysts for a lot of the conflict last season as far as them being on the run and having something that they were fighting back against. Uh, so I'll be curious to see where he's going to come back in, because I have no doubt that he's going to. I'll just be uh, very interested to see which side of the fight he ends up on this season, given his history with the Mutant Underground and his own personal history with the loss of his daughter, for sure. Uh, we did get one or two uh, new characters, uh, particularly, I don't even have the names yet, but the uh, the woman who's kind of in charge of the Inner Circle and the Hellfire Club, who was behind yes. the scenes, I guess, last season. Uh, did you enjoy any of the new characters particularly, or are you interested in where they're going? I really did. So, Reva Page is the, one of the newer characters. She is the leader of the quote-unquote Inner Circle, Um they wasted no time in this premiere making sure that everybody knew who she was and that she's a certified badass and savage because the I don't want to spoil anybody per se if they haven't seen it, but the opening scene involving the inner circle, like you immediately know that Reva Page means business and her number one priority is going, um, you know, her number one priority is taking care of making sure mutants are safe and on the right side of history, so to speak. And she's pretty ruthless about how she's going about doing it. I also want to talk a little bit about um, the fact, the Frost sisters, we know them from last season for sure, but they're definitely going to play a bigger part this season, um, without a doubt. We find out that, you know, they've really been acting under Reva's orders all this time getting Lorna to come to the Hellfire Club, you know, making that decision at the end of season one that was pretty catastrophic when she pulled that plane out of the sky using her powers. So I'll be curious to see how it progresses because there's definitely, um, there's some tension there. I do not believe that Lorna entirely trusts them, but we're going to have to see where it goes because I think at some point she's going to have to, especially given the fact that now that her baby is born, you know, by the end of this episode, this premiere, I think there will be some conflict of trust there. And I'll be curious to see what Lorna decides to do with those feelings. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. As someone who did come in more from a comics perspective, it's always interesting on a show like this, like which characters they use or not. You've talked about sort of Polaris and bringing her in. Um, when I realized when there was that big reveal in season one that this was the Cuckoo Sisters... I was like, oh, that's yeah. so cool. Like, that's the perfect character who's big enough that most everybody knows who they are. But also, like, nobody on the film side is going to fuss at them for, like, taking that character and using them. So, 
Agreed. So me not coming from the comic side of things, I started researching who the Cuckoo Sisters were and, you know, the Hellfire Club and the connection to Magneto, who is Lorna Dane's father, who still hasn't technically been mentioned on The Gifted yet. And I actually like that they're sort of being like all cloak and dagger with it, so to speak. Um, It leaves that air of mystery, I think, for the people who aren't aware of the history, but also the people who are can be like, oh, I totally know what's going down. So I think it works for both sides. But uh, I really, that's one of the great things I will say about this TV show as someone who has had to study the comic side myself, is I feel like they have done a really excellent job of mixing the original myth with this kind of new age, relatable world that has a lot to do with some of the conflict that's going on in the current state of things in the world we live in. And that's hard to pull off. There are not a lot of writers that I have felt do a good job when it comes to finding that mix of old and new. And I really respect the gifted team for accomplishing what they've done so far with the new and original, or the old and the original characters, rather. Yeah, and I think we've seen even hints. It's very early in this episode. If you haven't seen this episode, definitely go watch it before you listen to this. But uh, she mentions, Reva mentions kind of like a mutant homeland as something she wants to work towards. And we were just talking on the podcast a couple weeks ago that once Kevin Feige gets a hold of the X-Men properties, that whenever there's been an attempt to create a mutant nation, whether it was Genosha or Asteroid M or some of these other storylines where Magneto tried to create a place for mutants to live and be in peace, it's a really naturally tense situation because it just becomes like a geopolitical thing. And, you know, you, it's not just like an oppressed people, but it becomes an opportunity for war. And you have to give them somebody's land. And so there's kind of that that thing. And it just, the idea that this show might head that direction, where there's kind of like a Genosian homeland that some of the mutants live in, and they're under constant pressure from other nations. I think that would be a really interesting place. And I love that that seed was in this, you know. And I want to agree with you, though, for sure, um, the whole homeland idea, especially when they put that scene in Lorna's head, you know, talking about, you know, the future and giving her that image of her daughter grown up in a place that is safe. I think that Reva's definitely going to, like, use that homeland goal and play on Lorna's emotions to try and achieve that. Um, I want to say for sure something else I would really like to see personally. Um, I have so much love for Lorna Dane's character, but I want to see her destroy more things. And maybe that's really selfish of me. Uh, but like during the birthing scene, for example, like the whole power grid went out. Like, I think Lorna has the potential to be just as powerful as her father. Once she learns to really harness that power over that magnetism, uh, but I want to see her, like, destroy entire towns, which is terrible. And Marcos, Marcos would not agree with me on that because people would probably get hurt. But I just want to see more of Lorna being able to really, like, harness that power and use it. Which, who wouldn't want to be Magneto's daughter? Let's just think about that for a minute. As crazy as it is, like, her powers are 100%. If I could pick something, you know, from the X-Men universe, that would definitely be it. Now, Sarah, was there um, anything you didn't like about this episode? Like, is there anything that you wish they'd done a little different? 
anything I didn't like. I think, like, if I had to complain about anything, and this would probably be my number one gripe on the majority of TV shows, and I have to remind myself that it's Fox and it's a family channel, but I I like things to be more real, especially on the medical side of stuff. Um, don't have any kids personally myself, but I have plenty of friends who have had them. Definitely know that's not how things go down when you have a kid, but I realize, you know, there's going to be some um, niceties taken with those kinds of things because we can't have blood and gore and, like, real medical stuff on TV shows that kids are watching. So, but I wish that they would try a little bit harder sometimes, uh, just like in any TV show, to really get the medical stuff right. Just because, you know, realism, even in a fantasy show, a sci-fi show like this, I still think is really important. I do want to mention, um, uh, other than that, really don't have any complaints. I want to mention one thing that I loved. Like, one of the random things that I loved is how much of a badass Caitlin Strucker has become since the end of season one. Let's talk about how she got shot and managed to pull the gun on the wire guy in that scene her and Marcos are interrogating him in and totally stitched herself up afterwards like a badass. Like, I'm probably the number one Caitlyn fan out there right now because of how cool she is. Yeah, I had a real kick out of, like, her, like, Jack Bauer turn, you know? Like, she's just so desperate and angry. I I did think it was really funny that you mentioned the medical part because... That was the thing that really got me. I was watching it with my wife. We've had four kids. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I'm sure you're probably like, no, that is definitely not well, how it goes. Well, the weirdest part was he he's like, push, push. And then he's like, oh, she's not dilated at all. You don't push if you're not dilated. Like, like that's not at all how that works. <laughs> right. Like, you didn't realize before... That she wasn't dilated. It's like, I have to look past it because I like, no, it's not like the focus. But yeah, yeah, that bothered me. I was like, no, it's not how it goes. From a plot perspective, we were both sitting here like, if we knew that someone was this powerful and there was this much danger in them giving birth, why they didn't give her an epidural or why they didn't do a C-section? Like, it seems like there would be other medical options that would possibly you know, save the entire city instead of doing this. So that seemed a like little goofy. Like sedate her or something, you would think. But, yeah, I guess that, you know, I, I did enjoy the fact that she was basically, like, destroying the power grid and, like, things were falling down. Like, I got a kick out of that. It's not how I want to see her doing those things, but it, it was entertaining for sure. And I do, like, you know, plot-wise... One of the good things, aside from the janky medical stuff that we all realized was not real at all, I think that a good thing to focus on, like, during that montage of scenes, you know, Marcos was trying to find her. And Sean, Sean Teal, who plays Marcos Diaz, does such a phenomenal job. Some of his scenes from last season, like, that man can just put emotions on his face like nobody's business. And he plays heartbroken so well. I really love his and Lorna's dynamic, and I hope by the end of this season that we're seeing them back together in some shape or form. Um, I really love how him, how Sean and Emma play off of each other's characters, and Sean just does an amazing job. I guess the only other question I'd have is, do you have 
I mean, anywhere specific that you want things to go from here? Do you have any other hopes that you're pl- wanting to see from the rest of the season? I like, like I just mentioned, I definitely want to see Marcos and Lorna reunited. Um, like uh, again, like I said, I'm a big like star-crossed lovers. Like you know, the, I just love their dynamic so much. Like I'm a complete nerd about the Aurora scene from like the first couple episodes of season one. For those Eclaris shippers out there that know what I'm talking about. In fact, Lorna was thinking about him, you know, in one of the opening scenes when she was with the in, inside the inner circle headquarters. She was thinking about Marcos, and it's just like, oh, my heart. But other than that selfish thing that I want to see my ship, you know, sailing again. But one of the things I think will be interesting to see is Reed Strucker, who plays the father of the Strucker family. Um, you know, in the premiere, we kind of see his powers reemerging. And he is not prepared for it at all. And it kind of throws a loop for him, I think. So I'll be curious to see where that goes and how it affects him. Um, Of course, I'm curious to see what happens with Jace Turner, the Sentinel Service agent. And um, just if, you know, I want to see if, you know, John and Blink and everyone, the Mutant Underground, will be able to, you know, reconcile. I want Lorna to come back to the fold. I just think it will take her time to figure out that, She's not playing for the right side right now. Or at least, you know, some people could argue that she thinks she is. Yeah, awesome. I'm, that's It sounds really exciting. I'm uh, enjoying it. Um, I didn't mention I do love Thunderbird, too. That's a character that's been chronically mistreated throughout the comics, even. You know, like, he's one of those characters that was killed very early on. And so I think it's cool to see him kind of flushed out finally. I agree. I agree. And I really, really love Blair Redford. Like, not only is he a good-looking individual, like, I'm just going to put it out there. Blair, you are super attractive. (laughs) But he does a fantastic job playing that character. And um, I was really upset last season to see Thunderbird's partner, Dreamer, kind of get the axe on the show. It, It served a purpose as far as moving the drama forward. But I have really enjoyed him and Blink in this premiere episode. So I'll be, you know, totally glad to see where that relationship goes as well. Well, I think that's all I've got um, to ask you. I mean, if you had anything else you wanted to share, that'd be fine. But Yeah, of course. Uh, If there's anything I could close with is, you know, just encouraging people, you know, go watch this show. It really is. The great thing is it is friendly for pretty much all ages. And if you're an X-Men fan, you can't go wrong because they really do do a great job, you know, taking that original myth and running with it and creating something new and unique out of it. So, yeah, everybody go watch for sure. And thank you for having me. Oh, we're, we're, we're happy to. I think people can jump on, too, at this point. Like, if you didn't watch season one, you could start at season two, episode one, I think, and and not feel too out of place. Definitely, for sure. But they also are all on Hulu as well, for anyone that wants to watch. All right, thanks again, and uh, we really appreciate you being part of our show today. All right, time for the mailbag. Uh, you guys were really quiet in that interview. It was kind of interesting how you just uh, kind of let me do all the talking, but that's okay. Let's talk about our mailbag. Yeah. No, I was just absorbing. I mean, I endorse Sarah. I was so excited to hear you're talking about it. So, you know. A wise man once told me, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Oh, ooh, that's deep. That's really deep. 
sorry. That's all right. But I <laughs> so, no, I I actually I actually didn't watch The Gifted. That's why I was quiet. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> so on our mailbag, um, Love Waffle uh, was talking about the Disney streaming service, and uh, he didn't seem as excited about it. He felt like this is really similar to Agent Carter, like the idea of unused characters and giving them more space. He's like, didn't we already do that with Agent Carter? Uh, and also said he felt like it was similar to one shots. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like the Kevin Feige piece is a big piece for me, but um, interesting his perspective. Uh, Dave has a whole theory that the reason Loki can come back is that um, Loki is hanging out in hell, like H-E-L Norwegian hell. And that Thor is going to go save him from from hell and from uh, maybe from Hela, which is interesting idea. Uh, and then they had a good little back and forth about um, how how Avengers four might end. And they had the idea: wouldn't it be crazy if the Avengers just convinced Thanos to just change his mind, like? What if Thanos becomes the good guy in the end and undoes the snap just because he's convinced that's the right thing to do? I hate that idea because I want to see Thanos get his yeah, butt kicked. It's terrible. <laughs> it worked in Doctor Strange where they just irritated the crap out of Dormammu until... Let's talk about that real quick. I thought I was thinking about that the other day. How much of a waste was Dormammu? Like looking back at it? Oh, he's coming back, man. I mean, he's almost a Thanos level buildup, though. Yeah, but he could be he could be the main villain for Avengers five, right? If they really wanted him to be. So yeah, I think it'll be. I mean, I think we're gonna see Mordo and Dormammu probably team up at some point, and then that'll get that'll get real exciting. Uh, over on YouTube, Indie Film Productions um, was talking about Iron Fist and said that he really he would love Iron Fist three to be the Thor Ragnarok of Netflix shows. Like, just go ahead and take the weird, take the mystical, and just crank it up to 11. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Meredith Sutton was commenting on Iron Fist, and she said, because uh, we are talking about how comic accurate it was, she said she hasn't read the comics, but she loved the ending and was really excited about everything that was happening and really didn't care what the comics said because it was really fun for her. And then Indie Film Productions was also saying he felt like there should be more Oscar love for Infinity War than Black Panther. So that is most of our mail for this week. We have had um, MT4 on uh, MT4. Michael Michael T. Ford III on uh, the uh, live chat today. Uh, he did <laughs> laugh. Apparently, we used the phrase "pass the buck" at one point with uh, Jeff Loeb, which was an interesting choice of words, given what we were talking about. Um, he was also saying uh, when we talked about these directors, t- small indie directors taking these big movies. Once you get a uh, hit like that under your belt, uh, you can write a blank check for your next few passion projects, and I think that's that's probably true. Also, um, Black Widow will only be 16 in 1999 based on the MCU timeline. Hmm. Um, Oh, then they could recast. Yeah, wouldn't that make people, the Black Widow people angry, though? Like, that they would have to, like, they've been waiting for the Black Widow movie all this time. They've been dreaming about the Scarlett Johansson Black Widow movie, and then they recast it as some teenager. Have they, have they, yeah, I mean, I guess ScarJo has big fans, I guess, um, but. 
I thought she was like, I thought she had a say in like the director and stuff, didn't she? Or there were meetings or. Well, in Hollywood, they apparently think that Scarlett Johansson is Asian, so I don't see why she can't be 16 as well, right? Exactly. That was a joke about the casting controversies around ScarJo. Hopefully you at home were laughing because I didn't get any that I could hear. And I only understand that joke because Michael T. Ford explained it all to me. Uh, also, Michael T. Ford is very disappointed in you, Adam. You did not make fun of Shadowhunters Why? once in this episode. Oh, no. <laughs> I totally forgot. Well, it's not over yet. Oh, hey, there. If they are they nominated yeah, they, for that award? Yeah, I didn't look at it. I just saw I was tagged in it in the People's Choice Awards. Ugh. I totally assumed you would be retweeting in support of them. I would rather have the most popular Oscar back. So you said it's the People's Choice Award? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Evidently, People's Choice, they're putting shows out there, and you retweet a certain tweet for your show, and that's, like, part of the voting. So. So they're going to win for sure, because that's all those people do. Are oh, no. No. They're up against the Winona. <laughs> if you're listening to this, I would encourage you to uh, retweet and at Adam every time you do to get uh, Shadowhunters uh, nominated for this award. So Go ahead, man. I'm begging for a reason to delete delete so so for those that are curious shadow hunters has 2400 retweets supernatural has like 882 so i thought i mean i thought they had the wildest fans winona erp has 1.9 thousand so everybody should get retweet winona erp i mean there's other shows too but not anywhere near as good supernatural is actually not a bad show though i mean i don't know i haven't watched it in 10 years I was about to say, isn't it an episode, like season like eighteen or something? Thirteen or fourteen, yeah. Can anything be that good except for like Saturday Night Live after all those years? Even Saturday Night Live's not that good after all those years. It, oh, be careful there, Chevy Chase. It comes and goes. You don't want to be put in the same boat as that guy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we have really diverted, but yeah. <laughs> Did you see that interview yes. that this week? I saw yeah, I saw that. Oh, man, what a really angry old man. The crazy thing is, when he was in Community, I was like, wow, Dan Harmon wrote a really nasty character for him. I think Dan Harmon just asked him to show up on set and be him. All right, uh, next week we are going to be talking about New York Comic Con <gasps> because I know it's that, I mean, it's still 12 days away or something stupid because of how early we're recording, but... Yeah, it's coming. We have not figured out our plan. I would not be surprised if we'll record after it or somewhat during it and some after or whatever. But uh, maybe we'll record. We'll see. Maybe we'll. Ooh. Maybe we'll record at our party. I was actually thinking you should at least bring the microphone and or your um your portable yeah, yeah. like recorder thing, and we can at least um have people hopefully not totally inebriated uh do our you know we could do the mailbag live and in person so we got to save the uh inebriation for our zima episode <laughs> they never responded they never responded to my tweets back asking for sponsorship Aww. so i wonder what the deal is there. dude i promise you we talk more about zima than any other podcast in america i don't understand how we could not get Maybe I should tweet them something more than just, hey, you up. <laughs> of course, 
to be fair, we're also discovering that there are podcasts who do nothing but crap on Netflix that somehow get Netflix interviews that yeah. we don't. Uh, we shouldn't get into this on the podcast, but anyway. Oh, let's do it. Let's just go scorched earth. <laughs> scorched. It's rigged. The system's rigged against. I mean, screw welcome the to man. our slack shot. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can interact with us a lot of ways. Send us your messages on Twitter at Marvel News Desk. You can also communicate via our MarvelNewsDesk.com posts each week. If you want to support the show, give us a dollar a month over at Patreon.com slash MarvelNewsDesk, where you'll get a special MCU film ranking episode available only to our supporters, as well as uh, this year's annual episode will be coming up in a couple months here. Um, also, you'll get early access to videos like the Road to Infinity War Supercut, uh, also, the top level gets a T-shirt, and those T-shirts are very, very close to actually existing. So uh, you can support us there, too. And also, if you want to watch the live stream of us recording, like Michael T. Ford, you can do that as well. Uh, like us on Facebook at Facebook.com, or subscribe to our YouTube channel on Marvel watch.marvelnewsdesk.com. You can also help the show be more visible to others if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The number one most important thing you do every week is you listen and you tell your friends, and we're very appreciative of that. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, thanks to Tim Cox for our logo. You can find him on Instagram at Tim V. Cox. And thanks to Alvin for the theme music. You can find him on at the Skull School at a variety of social media platforms. All right, that does it for this week, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Bye.